Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. Today is the 163rd episode, and the title of today's episode is Race, Sex, Class, and Effective Struggle. In the early to middle years of the New Left, insofar as people had systematized thoughts, Marxism was in the ideological saddle as activists' systemic guide to radical analysis. Left concepts elevated economics, class was paramount, imperialism was the reigning enemy. The plight of the ghettos, the sex life of teenagers, the ills of alcoholism, the roots of crime. The astute activists' informed way into these topics, or into pretty much anything else, was via class categories. Certainly many folks considered gender, race, sex, and culture, but typically as secondarily important, or in the technical terminology of the time, for those who were sharply ideological, as part of the superstructure. Then along came Black Power, La Raza, the women's movement, and the gay and lesbian movements, fighting not only repressive systems in society, but also reactionary residues in the left, and they together raised up racism, sexism, and heterosexism on the left agenda. Highlight our facets of society in your thought and practice, these movements instructed, not as mere derivatives, not as mere superstructure, influenced but not influential, but as critical elements in their own right. Pay central attention to race, gender, and sexuality, not just because they profoundly impact people's lives, but also as strategic keys to system maintenance, and especially to system transformation. Jet forward in time to some years ago. Even with the amazing emergence of anti-globalization movements, class was, truth be told, relatively absent from the left's lexicon. Attention to the economy not only diminished in left organizing, it was often even missing entirely. Lots of leftists even celebrated markets, once a despised part of society's problems. Innovative and insightful focus on class relations, class consciousness, class struggle, and class organization became relatively slight. Not none, but relatively slight, and it had been for years. Race, gender, and sex, on the other hand, became relatively spotlighted, and increasingly so. What happened, and what was to be done? Everyone realizes that with race, gender, and sexuality added to the mix of progressive politics, many people came in who weren't high on class and on anti-capitalism. Just as in some labor movements, there are those who aren't focused on sexuality, gender, and race. But no one argues that this alone explains the decline of attention to class. After all, we should have been able to raise class consciousness for these constituencies, like they rightly sought to raise gender, race, and sex role consciousness for labor-oriented constituencies, thereby enlarging the perspective of every activist constituency. So looking for a deeper answer, some people examine this history and say that blacks, Latinos, women, and gays somehow actively pushed class out of prominence. They replaced it with all this fragmenting social stuff, and we have all paid the price, say some. We must now gear up to reverse the trend, they argue. We must put class back on the table. In fact, to properly highlight class, we have to clear the table of exaggerated emphasis on peripheral and fragmenting concerns. So goes the claim. This view has appeared in progressive periodicals, books, and gatherings. But is it credible? According to these critics, 
hard upon the prior period of economic prioritization, attention to race, in particular, a black power nationalist conceptualization, came along and started the process of elbowing class aside. Then came feminists, focusing on gender, more elbowing. Then the gay movements rose and fought, elbows flying. Given this picture, though, I wonder why didn't the subsequent arrival of the women's movement elbow race, and not just class, off the agenda? And why didn't the arrival of queer activism elbow gender and race, and not just class, off the agenda? How come it is only class that significantly succumbed to newly arriving prioritizations, as if the other three concerns constitute some kind of unholy alliance, when clearly they were and remain often quite at odds with each other? If that doesn't raise any questions in your mind about the roots of the declining attention to class over the past few decades, go back and look at the rhetoric and literature of the identity politics movements. Were there components that largely ignored class, in some sense contributing to its diminishment? Sure, there's no sense denying it. But why would class, previously entrenched, with a much longer pedigree, presumably so much more important in the eyes of its advocates, retreat so dramatically under such a spurious and weak assault? Moreover, consider that for every new sector trying to replace class, there were others that sought to add race or gender or sexuality, or all of them, to class and to one another, keeping class prominent and expanding left agendas. Yes, radical feminists argued the priority of gender and kinship in much the way as orthodox Marxists argued the priority of class and economics, so that their battle with Marxism was, in some sense, zero-sum. And there is no point in denying that either. But Marxist feminists, with a hyphen, argued the need to have two conceptual toolboxes and orientations, using each in turn as appropriate. And better still, socialist feminists, without a hyphen, saw the need to reinvent approaches to both class and gender, with each being newly informed by the other. Socialist feminists argued for building one new conceptual toolbox with both focuses prioritized simultaneously. And while there were no comparably revealing names, the same held regarding race and sexuality and their interface with class. Why, then, didn't the more insightful and innovative efforts, plus the attachment to class in the first place, keep class on the table? That is, if class and economics were riding relatively high in the saddle, and then along came efforts to put race, gender, and sex into our conceptual framework, with some elements arguing replacement, but others arguing addition. How come 30 or 40 years later, only the advocates of class have to argue that it needs to be put back on the table? And why did it fall off the table in the first place? I think this is an interesting question that many folks are coming to the wrong conclusions about, with potentially disastrous results. My view might be a bit idiosyncratic, but here goes. Yes, Non-Marxist-inspired movements fought to establish the central importance of race, gender, and sexuality. But that was a needed step forward. Economism, arguing the a priori priority of economic relations and the superstructural secondariness of kinship, cultural, sexual, and even power relations, was wrong, and would still be wrong if revived today. 
So why did attention to class diminish instead of persisting alongside and entwined with other newly elevated priorities and conceptual insights? The first broad cause of the declining attention to class by the ideological left from the new left to more recently had two sides, I think, as has been widely understood. First, when it was in the saddle, much of Marxism was like radical feminism or narrow nationalism in trying to defend a monistic prioritization of a single side of life as paramount economy. Marxism's advocates did this, if not always in word, certainly in many deeds. They believed it honestly, and they fought for it on grounds of its validity, however wrongly. Such Marxists didn't say, as they should have, quote, these critics are correct in berating our economism. We have been right to be concerned about economics, but we have been wrong to think that culture, race, gender, sex, and so on are derivative. We should welcome the criticism and incorporate the new insights. We need to expand our concepts, not only of the rest of society, but even of economics, seeing how the new understanding of the emanations of influences having to do with race and gender and sex affect even the nature of capitalist economic logic and relations. This was the mindset of the socialist feminists and some others. It was an orientation that could have helped keep class in the movement's headlights rather than drifting out of view. And second, the reason this welcoming and innovative attitude wasn't adopted by all Marxists wasn't only due to a principled, if ignorant, attachment to economism. It was also defensive, at least in part. That is, men in the movement, and whites in the movement, and straights in the movement weren't eager to have the movement challenge many of their ways and beliefs, and yes, their advantages. So these factors worked together to pose the problem as class or race, class or gender, class or sex for these Marxists, instead of class and race, gender, and sex. But I don't find this convincing as a full explanation of the drift away from attention to class. Yes, both these reasons were at work, but how strongly were they at work? I think a serious study would show that in fact most Marxists from the 1960s on were, with some hesitation, open to the ideas that these other concerns had to be conceptually and programmatically prioritized, not just class. I never bought that the race, gender, and sex biases of class-focused movements as activists, whether we are talking their principled conceptual beliefs or their personal material and social interests, were strong enough to cause them to essentially leave the stage of social change, essentially running from the threat of race, gender, and sexual activists and thus reducing support for class politics by their absence, rather than, say, admit the importance of other focuses and struggle on. In fact, I think if we went back and tracked people's trajectories, we would instead find that a whole lot of these folks slowly but surely embraced race, gender, and sex politics, but also reduced their allegiance to class politics. So what else could be at work? I am out on a lonely limb here, but I think the additional problem which contributed to declining attention to class was that the Marxist-inspired movements advocating class focus were never very coherent in the first place. I think they in some sense left the stage largely due to their own limited allegiances. What was the weakness of class-oriented leftism 50 years ago, and how did it contribute to the drift away from class politics? Well, 
That leftism was very good on ownership relations. It militantly rejected private ownership of the means of production, and it understood the difference between owning capital and accumulating profits on the one hand, and only owning one's ability to do work and selling it for wages on the other hand. There were no significant confusions about any of those issues, but that was the extent of comprehension. Class meant ownership, and understanding class relations meant understanding the impact of ownership on motivations, power, and income. That was good, but it was not good enough. The problem is that there is another locus of class definition largely left out by an exclusive prioritization of ownership relations. That is, people's relations to production per se, not just to ownership, the roles they fill. If one set of non-capitalists has a relative monopoly on information relevant to workplace decision-making, on levers of economic power, on higher incomes, and on more status, and another set of non-capitalists essentially enacts instructions with little access to broader information, no access to levers of decision-making power, little status, and lower incomes, this is also a difference affecting motivations, incentives, life conditions, and life perspectives. It is a class division, in short, between what I call the coordinator class of empowered workers and a working class of more typical rote workers. It is not based on ownership and becomes, in fact, essentially invisible if the only concepts we use for discerning class differences are relations of ownership. So what does this have to do with diminishing attention to class? Had it not been for race, gender, and sex elbowing class off the stage, perhaps the orthodox Marxist movements would have gotten around to this broader conceptualization. I think not. I think the answer is more or less the opposite, which is a big part of why class declined in visibility. Here's why. First, Marxist movements were profoundly and militantly anti-capitalist, of course. But at least operationally, and at the level of leadership and their conceptual framework, they were often, intentionally or not, pro-coordinator class, not pro-working class. That is, the Marxist agenda was to create a new economy without private ownership, yes, but one in which folks with a relative monopoly on information and skills bearing on decision-making and on access to levers of decision-making power became the new ruling class, as in every country where Marxism has won. Second, something about the arrival of race, gender, and sex-oriented leftism meant that if class stayed on the table, awareness of the role of the coordinator class would come to the fore. Third, on average, not for every Marxist, of course, but for many, this greatly weakened the resolve of Marxists to stay focused on class, causing many to fight against the new orientations and others to align with them, but relatively few to try to keep class in focus along with race, gender, and sex. If true, this analysis would explain events nicely. But is there anything to it? What could it be about the arrival of race, gender, and sex focuses that would have caused people paying attention to class to see beyond ownership relations to the role of information, knowledge, and monopolies on decision-making tasks in the life of coordinators and workers? Movements against racism, sexism, and heterosexism all address themselves in considerable part to the actual interpersonal social relationships between people. 
They look hard to find the hidden injuries of their oppressions that involve the detailed ways of relating, dismissing, and ruling one another among opposed groups. Imagine, if you will, that the 1960s movements that highlighted class had been enlarged by adding to the class focus attention to race, gender, and sex. If class was to continue being investigated and interrogated alongside these new focuses, in short order the hidden injuries of class would surface. The methods of the newcomers, which included paying attention to actual social interactions, beliefs and relations, aspiration, words and deeds, would have quickly brought to the table workers' antipathy toward lawyers, doctors, engineers, and of course managers. It would have led to exploration of this antipathy, revealing the basis of it in real and consistent structural economic relationships, that is, in class differences. It would have led to seeing that an economic program could oppose capital and advance either workers or coordinators, and it would therefore have led to a more profound and needed critique of orthodox Marxism than that it was just too narrow. Working people's views of their own situations would have been heard in a context informed by the women's movement, the anti-racist movement, and the gay movements, and the concepts emerging from the latter's views would have entered the debate and changed awareness. Ownership would not have disappeared as a concern, to be sure, but the question of who has immediate experienced economic power over daily life conditions would have come to the surface as well. The worker-capitalist interface would have stayed on the table, but the worker-coordinator interface would have joined it there, as well as concerns about race and culture broadly, gender and sexuality. You can see how this would have happened organically, inevitably, I think, had the old advocates of class welcomed the new ways of thinking and the new priorities of the social movements, and then begun to apply them to the economy as well. Not leaving behind their anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, anti-exploitation inclinations, but retaining those and adding new dimensions. So there we have it, and what an irony. Yes, the racial and sexual biases of old orthodox Marxism, whether it was honest intellectual errors or defenses of material and social advantages and prejudices, no doubt caused some of its members to resist new movements and to even retire from the stage rather than persist in some new alliance that would keep class concerns prominent. But alone, this just doesn't explain the full reality. For one, why did only class decline? Two, why didn't the add the new priorities to the old one mentality win out over the replace the old priorities with new ones mentality? And three, why did so many of the old class-focused folks actually change to embracing race, gender, and sex politics, however dropping their old prioritization? I believe that class focus had a weak basis because, first, the intellectual framework and practices that sustained it were not truly committed to unequivocally pro-working class agendas. And second, its advocates were highly attached to not revealing this fact, even to themselves, and not admitting their other class allegiances, that is, to a coordinator vision and practice with intellectuals in command. If this is at all accurate, what is a good way forward? That, after all, is always the important question. In our society, community cultural relations, gender and kinship relations, sexual relations, political power relations, and, of course, economic class relations, quite evidently are all powerful determinants of people's life prospects.
They all demarcate social groups with on average different circumstances, material and social interests, and prospects for becoming radicalized in various ways. Moreover, each of these spheres of social involvement and function reproduce not only their own defining oppressive hierarchies, but due to having been molded by the others so powerfully, contribute to all the defining oppressive hierarchies. To understand any aspect, economy, kinship, community, polity, requires concepts fully informed by lessons from examining the others. Yes, we need to put class back on the activist agenda. We need class concepts organizing our perceptions and structuring our thoughts. We need class vision providing aspirations and orientation and class strategy to guide our practical choices. But we also just as centrally need gender, race, and sexual concepts, vision, and strategy. We need a way to practice activism that respects the autonomy of the constituencies all these aspects of life define, and that gives each room to develop and nurture its own agendas, and which simultaneously breaks down the biases of each against real solidarity. If we go from having had class in the saddle of a one-horse show to having race, gender, and sex in three saddles of three horses running largely at odds with each other, and then back to the one-horse class myopia again, it will pile shame and error upon shame and error. Dump the horses entirely. Dump the either-or mentality about what is important in social life and strategy. Create a conceptual framework and strategic sensibility that pays proper regard to all critical sides of social life, in particular to economics, polity, culture, and kinship. Create movements that combine the needed autonomy of issue-focused projects and movements that will emerge and are needed for their constituencies to find their own agendas with the overarching solidarity that is prerequisite for any one agenda to be fully informed by essential insights from all the others. Sure, this argument revolves around more than two steps, but it isn't rocket science. It's as clear as the world around us, and has been for decades now. And while we are at it, we must also expand our class concepts to account for the three-class rather than two-class environment we operate within. A friend of mine told me one day of saying to his three-year-old child, you can do this or you can do that, now let's get on with it. Which will it be? And the child said back, but daddy, I don't like either choice. Three-year-olds can manage this level of comprehension. We don't have to choose between class myopia and non-class myopia. This time around, surely we can opt for something broader. If we don't, we have only ourselves to blame. The above, I should perhaps note, was excerpted from a book of mine published 20 years ago, titled Trajectory of Change. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.